habitateb.org or call 510-251-6304. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest today part two of a two-part interview with Tony Tacconi, who's the artistic director of Berkeley Rep, the third artistic director of the company. It's been around four decades, and this is the tenth year of Tony Tacconi as artistic director, formerly artistic director over at the Eureka Theater for seven years in San Francisco. Tony Tacconi has directed several plays at Berkeley Rep most recently and still open, Wishful Drinking, a one-woman show with Carrie Fisher, Berkeley Rep, celebrating its 40th year, has been since 1980 in its current location. The Thrust Stage, the Rhoda Theater, opened, uh, second theater opened in 2001. Let's talk a little about the choice of plays. I was looking at this past season, a couple of one-person shows, and then next season looking at plays like um, Yellow Jacket, an August Wilson play, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, Arabian Nights, Mary Zimmerman, the Vibrator play by Sarah Rule, whose dead man's cell phone just opened on Broadway, a couple of imports, one from Chicago and one from off-Broadway, uh, Lieutenant Devinishmore, which I'm looking forward to seeing myself because <laughs> I, love, I love McDonough's stuff. Right. still haven't seen uh, in Bruges. Um, it's supposed to be good. This series. Right. I mean, how do you how do you determine it? More specifically, let's let's look at one in particular. Yellow Jacket uh, is done by a young playwright from Berkeley who's just past the age of thirty. It was commissioned by Berkeley Rep. How does that work? How do you commission a play, and what is the process? Um, Edamar Moses, who's the writer, is uh, thirty years old. He went to Berkeley High and graduated in nineteen ninety two. The same year that my oldest son also graduated from Berkeley High. Edamar is a wonderful writer, and we have a new program at uh, at the Rep. We want to basically hire 50 playwrights over the next 10 years to write a play for us. So we want to introduce 50 new plays into the lexicon of American drama. That's very ambitious, and it's very exciting. Edamar and Sarah's plays, which are going to premiere next year, represent the first sort of full expression production of that program even though we've done a lot of new work in the past this is a formal program that makes the production and the development of new work an absolutely fundamental part of what we do every single year which is really good for us and really exciting it also creates a home for the american playwright and which we want to be i think in the past we've basically been a home for the director uh, sometimes for the actor, and not quite enough for the writer. And this is our this is our statement really to to sort of move in a, in a dramatic way to accomplish that. 
So Edomar's play. So how do you how do you commission a play? It's not that complicated. You identify writers who you who you love or who you find are promising. We have a literary staff, a dramaturg, and a literary manager. Madeline Oldham is our dramaturg. Les Waters, who's my associate, who has spent his entire life both at the uh, at the royal court in England, developing younger writers, has a phenomenal eye and ear for new work. Um, I've worked with a lot of folks. Amy, who's our uh, casting associate, she's got a like a wonderful eye. So the entire artistic staff and some of the administrative staff is is poised to be looking out for talent, feeding us new new scripts. So we identify somebody who we like. We approach them, and we say, "Are you interested in, and um, and available for a, you know a commission?" We then pay them money. We pay them uh, a sum of money, and we set a date. We say hypothetically, a year from now, you're going to hand us the first draft of a play. So, Richard, we're going to hire you to write a like a play. Um, a year from now, you're going to submit it, and then you start saying. Well, how about 15 months? <laughs> I anticipate my dog having major surgery. <laughs> you know, So we negotiate the date, which is fine. And it's usually almost always the playwright saying, I can't quite get it in then. But whatever date that is, whenever the script comes in, within a very short amount of time, let's say a month or two, we will have a reading of that play. At which time we have the option, we own the rights, we have the option of going forward with either draft number two or the final draft. If we're going to go forward at that point, that's a pretty serious statement. It's, a, it's, a, it's on a track to being done. So we start to gear up for workshops. Now, playwrights need different things, and they all basically want one single thing. They want you to do their play. <laughs> it's not rocket science. And so once, if you've decided that you're going to do it, and in most cases, we, we, we probably will. If we decide to do it, then we will determine, we'll sort of create a strategy. What does this play need? What does the playwright need? Some playwrights like a workshop. Some, some hate the workshop. Some workshops are for the staff to actually learn about the play and to see what the challenges are. And some are really for the writer to just really hear what the mechanics of the play are. And then eventually... You set a date when you feel it's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's almost always a little bit later than what the playwright wants. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're trying to err on the side of, like, making it ready, and they're trying to, like, get on with life. Because also, you know, the individual life is is faster than the organizational life. So if I say to you, Richard, you know, I want to do your next play. I mean, I'm really excited about what do you want to write about. And, and also, by the way, we never tell anybody what to write about. Because in my experience, it's a disaster if you do. I mean, it's like saying, Richard, I want you to write about the environment. And you say, uh, okay. How does that work with my imagination? But let's say you even say, okay, what happens is you will sit down, and in a year I will get a play, most likely, about an incestuous relationship between, <laughs> you know, a family in the Midwest. It has nothing to do with the environment. Because, as you know, when you sit down to actually create something, your unconscious kicks in. And something else happens on the page, in your head, in your heart, in your spirit. And you've got to go with that. You can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's different in that sense very much so than academia, you know, where you set out to, to write a book about the history of radio from... Whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. 
How many of these commissions do you have a year, and how many plays actually wind up at the end being produced? Well, that's a really, really good and uncomfortable question. Um, we have about three to five a year going out on the commissions. Right now, we have 11 people writing plays for us. They're all going to come in at different times because some of them are really backed up with other work. On July 1st of this year, we're supposed to get three scripts. I'll let you know what comes in. I mean, it's always a bit of a crapshoot in the sense that it's always interrupted or affected by real events in time, so you can't quite tell what's going to happen. But how many of them will we do? I'd say we'll do half, but we will try to marry a director of note with every playwright and we will try to place every play somewhere so they're gonna the playwright will work in the final stages with the director absolutely to absolutely yes to get the script into some kind of uh, shape for uh, like a final draft or a working draft that you go you know like into a rehearsal hall with Tony Tacconi let's talk a little about your career at this point did you want to be an actor originally did you all of us make that mistake Richard (laughs) (laughs) you know most people get into theater you know whether it's sixth grade or high school or college which I didn't get into theater until I was I was in graduate school actually but um yeah sure I was an actor for a number of years I was really bad I was a decent comic actor because I weighed about 85 pounds and you put me in a pair of tights was an instant laugh but other than that um uh, my skills were limited and actually I was uh, on tour as an actor in Colorado with a school tour show and and one of the, of the directors who was scheduled to do one of the shows in, that we hadn't rep couldn't do it at the last minute they came and asked me if i'd be interested and i i said sure and i went into rehearsal the next day and within it's the only real time i've ever had like a real like epiphany like within an hour of doing it i i knew at the very least i was going to be a lot more engaged with being like a director than i was an actor and that's how it began for you and where was that in colorado in colorado so you started in colorado what point did you come to the bay area i came to the bay area in 1975 I was in the graduate program at Cal for for a while until 79. I spent really four really great years there. And then I went to the Berkeley Stage Company, which is a thriving theater company where where Freight and Salvage is currently. It was a a wonderful, thriving company that happened there for a number of years down there. I worked there. Then I went over to the Eureka. Well, at the Eureka... You midwifed, I guess, uh, Angels in America. Yeah. Did uh, did Kushner approach you? Did you just see a script? How did that happen? No. That was in L.A. originally, right? No. Oh, no. No. Oh, it was originally no, Eureka no, no, before no, it went to absolutely. L.A. Absolutely. But it was it was the full production, the world premiere production, parts one and two, premiered in Los Angeles. It, it's it's a complicated story, but how it happened was Oscar Eustis, who is now running the public theater, a really good friend of mine, who was a dramaturg uh, of the Eureka when I was there. We had been searching for the new generation of American writers who were politically inclined, unafraid, and who had something to say. And we literally went on a kind of search for these people because we had been doing like the best of the Brits who had really become kind of like mentors for us. So we had heard about this kid named Tony Kushner from a professor friend who had him as a student. So I literally, like, dispatched Oscar to New York to go find this guy. We heard that he was in a, you know, in, in the New York City in the downtown working with a small uh, a group of folks. He came back off the plane. He met with Tony, found him in rehearsal for a play that has never been done called Heavenly Theater, his first play. And he came back with a plain hand called A Bright Room Called Day and said, you have to read this overnight. 
and I read it overnight. And he said, and I said, this is the best play I've read in 10 years. We decided to uh, produce that play. Tony was unknown at the time. We flew him out. We worked with him. We did um, a production of that play, which was wildly interesting and we thought this guy has so much talent it's just unbelievable what was that play again? a bright room cold day okay. it was about the weimar it was about hitler's rise to power the weimar Var republic and interspersed with that were scenes from a radical jewish younger woman who was railing about reagan and the parallels between reagan and hitler that's what it's about <laughs> So it was no, it was, you know, it was it was not for the faint-hearted. But then based upon that experience with him, we hired him to write a new play. He said he wanted, the only thing he knew about it was he wanted, it was going to be really short, a three-character chamber piece, and it had Roy Conan and a couple of Mormons. And seven years later, it became Angel in America. Did, it, did he just uh, show up with uh, Millennium Approaches? <laughs> no, no, that was, a, that was a process that was, although he wrote Millennium really fast. It came to him really, really fast. He wrote it in, in probably in, you know, nine months. He just wrote it, and and it kind of was birthed out of his head. Perestroika took like three and a half years. Well, Perestroika, you you said that was the uh, Perestroika premiere was down south then, or was yes. that yeah yeah part one Millennium premiered at the Eureka, and then they read what he had of Perestroika as the as the sort of a, like addendum, if you will, uh, to the evening, and then and then. Millennium premiered in, at, in London after that, but then at, at the taper in, in L.A., Oscar and I did the uh, the full full bloodied version. Well, when when Millennium showed up, that was the complete play then. Or yes, did you it was. you, you it didn't was. know there'd be a part two? No, no, no. We knew there would be a part. But we always knew there would, be, there would be a part two. We always knew that. But he just hadn't written it. So, and it's just easier beginning things than ending them. <laughs> How close is the version that you worked on? Uh, at Eureka with what I saw in uh, New York and with what a lot of people saw in HBO? Well, HBO had, ad had you know, adaptations that, that um, Tony wrote for the movie because it's, you know, like a film is not, you know, like a stage version. I mean, and I will say this about the movie, which I thought was, you know, acted brilliantly, but I think that that piece is essentially a theater play, and I, I think that the parts of it that were, Less realized were the were, you know was the stage magic, um, which was particular and and special on, on stage. Having said that, I th I think it's pretty close. I think I think both versions are pretty close. I mean, certainly the stage version in, in New York was the version that that we did in L.A. After you became the artistic director here at Berkeley Rep, he approached you then about Homebody Kabul. Well, Tony and I are close, and um, basically. He shows me what he's writing. I feel privileged to be one of the people who, uh, it's a small circle of people who he sends his ruminations. And he sent me a 250-page, single-spaced manuscript, which is probably eight hours long. Um, that, not, not eight hours, but it probably is about a four-and-a-half-hour version long uh, of Homebody, which was, as he would say, a mess. But I could tell immediately that opening monologue is unbelievable it's a just astonishing piece of writing and i said to him we're going to do this i just said look we're going to do this when you say that you have full control i mean you don't have to report back to anybody at berkeley rep and say well i do have control but certainly i have a staff uh and so i have to i have to marry my desires to possibility and 
resources and time and real things. But if I believe in something really, really, really a lot, uh, I, I can usually make something happen. You're listening to an interview with Tony Tacconi, who's the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. So at that point, you read Humbody Kabul, and you're floored by if, if by the right. opening monologue, right. which was astonishing. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, look, we're going to do this. You know, we'll, we'll work on it. And we did. We worked on it really hard. And, and uh, um, we also, one of the things that's hard about Homebody is just the casting issues. Because, you know, there were a lot of Arab uh, Americans in it and just getting, finding those people who could handle the language, who could, you know, all these things that come into play. It's not a huge acting pool. So culling the the country for actors who could do it and and then it became successful um we extended it for a very long time here did i i don't remember i don't know if it ever debuted on broadway i don't think no it, it didn't did. it did it's not a, it, like it's not a broadway show it's it's too thick there was a production of it that was done at new york theater workshop uh which was okay and i think based upon that it didn't it didn't uh catch fire in new york and then came brundabar and then came yeah yeah i did i I'd done slavs before i i did um Homebody, but Slavs was really kind of outtakes from Perestroika. You know, it was a way to keep uh, you know him in the game. And then I also did Hydrotaphia, which was another play that was written before all this stuff. And I literally produced that play in my first year as uh, AD because Tony was suffering from writer's block, and he was thinking about giving up the theater and going into film, and he was really in. And so I said, you know, no, 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 <laughs> that's a really bad idea. Come back to the theater and. Um, it was great because he, he actually, it was important to him that, that, that we did it and I worked on it with him and, and it, like it kept him in the game. Well, that, that brings up a, a question, which is something when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, I didn't ask him about, which is what happens to a playwright when their first play is one of the great plays of the 20th century? Where do you go from there? Um, it's not a good thing. <laughs> I mean, as much as you, I mean, he had writer's block for probably five years. Because everywhere he he turned, he was the guy who wrote Angels in America, and and so he suffered from you know the onus of that, just the the sense of like, well, what else am I going to be able to do? How can I follow this up? Which is why Slavs was outtakes from a uh, Perestroika, um, really great and enjoyable ones, but it was still outtakes from Perestroika. So he hadn't really he wrote a couple of scenes, but it wasn't like writing a full play. It really kind of wasn't until. I mean, really, truly, to be honest with you, it wasn't really until Caroline, which is, you know, his musical piece that that, that is inspired by his own life, but not a, a piece of autobiography, but it is inspired by his own life. It wasn't until Caroline that I think he fully broke from, from Angels in America. And that's exciting. And uh, after that, he worked on Munich. Uh, yes, with... he wrote Munich. He wrote Munich. And now he's writing the new um, Lincoln movie for Spielberg. Is he working on any plays these days? Yeah. In fact... In the spring of '09, which is coming up pretty soon, actually. Well, for you, it's it's tomorrow. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, actually, um, the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis is going to have a, a, a Kushner Festival in the spring of '09, and they're going to do Carolina Change. They're going to do a new, uh, supposedly, a new Kushner play drama. I'm going to direct an evening of his one X. And so we've picked five of them, and and uh, it's going to be in, in the studio. And, that, and then I'm going to bring those back to Berkeley Rep. We'll do them in spring of '09, at the end of the Guthrie season, and bring them back in the fall for the following year for Berkeley Rep. When you're when you're putting together like 2008 to 2009, 
Uh, and, you know, there, right. I noticed that there are a couple of imports in there. I mean, how do you balance, like, Figaro, I guess, is kind of an import, right? Yeah, Figaro is is, is, is not even kind of. It, it is. It is an import. It is an import. I mean, this season has, like, too many imports for, for me to, I mean, just to be really honest with you, I feel like it's it's a little import heavy, and some of it is, is accidental. We, I mean, the reason why Carrie Fisher's in our season, it's kind of an anomaly, I mean, really, they don't do that kind of work. I think as a special event, nobody would question it at all. But, you know, as a, as a subscription package, it's a little bit more chancy because it doesn't really offer the substance of a three-act play, certainly. Um, however, we had a play scheduled featuring Rita Moreno, who's become a colleague and a friend because she lives here, and she's a wonderful actress and a, a major artist and somebody who I'm so ecstatic to have on our stage. But... Um, we lost it because Rita's pilot got picked up. And we had announced it and we were selling tickets for it. So the only way Carrie Fisher worked was because, well, we had been selling tickets to a play featuring a very, very well-known actress. And so I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I was also really against the idea of doing two one-person shows in the same year. I thought this is not good. It didn't make me feel good at all. Well, at the same time, Yeah, actually, it's, it was yeah. weird. It just felt, feels weird. Having said that, worked out <laughs> <laughs> well for me watching it it's kind of i mean i i've seen up until these plays i've i've seen the sporadic Berkeley right, exactly. play and then suddenly in prep for this interview i'm yeah. suddenly seeing one person yeah plays yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's just it's, it's just an anomaly it, it, and, and if you look at um next year i mean yellow jackets is a cast of 12 joe turner's a cast of 12 Arabian Nights is a cast of 15. I mean, we're, you know, Sarah Rule's play, her, you know, um, her new play, the Vibrator play, enticingly entitled the Vibrator play. You know, that's that's a cast of seven. I mean, it, you know, we're going back to plays. Well, uh, for a play like um, Lieutenant of Inishmore, yeah. is that a, that's a local production, right? Yes, it is. Is that the kind of play that you and, and um, Carrie Perloff would kind of go, well, we both want this, I would think? They didn't put in for Lieutenant of Inishmore. Did they put in for the... Uh... For the Pillman? I think that they did. Yeah, and because we got in there early, and be, you know, you kind of use different relationships at that at that point. Although you know, ACT is a bigger size house, so for straight up numbers, they're going to win out over us. I mean, there is a pecking order, right. you know. Like, I mean, so we're going to get plays a shotgun can't get because it it will give the playwright more money and give the people who own the rights more money. So there there is that. You just have to like live with that. I mean, there have been plays that we wanted to do with Carol Schwarzenegger Hayes. I wanted to do um, Top Dog, Underdog, and, um, you know, she had the rights to it, so she, she got it, and great. What about a, a, a musical like uh, James Joyce's The Dead, which was an import that went into ACT? If they had passed on it, would you have taken a show Yeah, like I love that? that play. Yeah, I, 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 love, I thought it was fantastic, and I mean, I, I think, I mean, the thing is, though, with, with big shows, like big musicals are actually kind of hard to make in a 600-seat house, they're hard to make work because of the numbers. You know, what what price point do you have to charge people? You know, I mean, I I think that the musical, we can really pretty easily do what you might call a chamber musical. Like Passing Strange. Like Passing Strange. Or yeah. or even, a, you know, we, we did Brindabar. That was extraordinarily, you know, expensive, but it was worth it. I mean, we had a full orchestra. Well, you know, and we had a, like a 13-piece orchestra, which is not a full orchestra. For, for a full orchestra, as you know, is, well, um, by the way, you, you know, you're looking at 20, 24, 25, 20, 26 folks. And um, for a show like Passing Strange, what's that? That's just a small combo. Passing Strange was uh, a, a band of four and a company of six. So, a band of five, excuse me. 
So that's 11, folks. That's, you know, that, that, that's a doable thing. Although, whenever you do music, you incur all kinds of challenges, you know, that are both um, costly and also require a lot of attention and time because, you know, the music has to be scored and directed and arranged and shaped and, you know, teched. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, like a lot of stuff. Tony Tacconi, how important is a review by Robert Hurwitz? Um, it's important. It's important. Fortunately, I think I think uh, Rob's a really not only is he intelligent, I think he cares a lot about the craft. I think he cares a lot about the theater. And so we've had critics in the past at the Chronicle who whose interests were uh, decidedly different uh, c- commercial interests, and that's I'm going way back in I mean like in the day, but. Um, so, but I would say, yeah, it's important. I mean, it isn't, you know, I have to say, it's it's that little man thing. You know, the little man. I've know, heard that before, kinda, yeah. Kind of, um, you know, we haven't done a breakdown as to exactly how much money the little man's worth. <laughs> <laughs> I think I prefer to stay out of that thought process. But, yeah, it's it, it's a real thing. I'm not going to say it isn't a real thing. It, 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 it Like, it has an effect. Although, I mean, I'm sure that, that um, there that certainly there are shows that have been very well reviewed that had a hard time finding an audience that was you know commensurate with the expectation of the review and there were shows that um overcame what you might perceive as a lukewarm review yeah well that that little man is an interesting case uh, a friend of mine was one of the stars of uh, staircase oh, over yeah right. over right. at um at rhino right. and the review was pretty clear. It could have been either a clapping or a standing, yeah. looking straight. The, 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 what, they, what the Chronicle calls the attentive man and what we call the staring man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he said that, uh, that the difference was between having packed houses and mostly empty houses. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, probably a little different with the smaller, uh, you know, folks, because um, we have a, a lot of subscribers. So people buy seasonal passes to see numbers of shows. So, you know, they're kind of stuck with us no matter what happens. But what happens is that, you know, we'll have like a no-show rate that that's higher for a show that isn't uh, reviewed well or whatever. And you do extend by a week or two. We've built into our process the possibility of extending virtually every show by by at least a week. Do you ever bring a show back? Oh, God. We've almost brought shows back. Um... We talked a lot about bringing Brindabar back because the piece that we did in front of it, Tony rewrote a new play for it in New York, and it was a much better experience, so we thought about doing that. Um, we've almost brought back, like, The Tooth of Crime a couple of times, but we haven't, and we maybe should. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Ciccone, um you've now been with them for 10 years. How long do you want to stay with them? Well, I've been with Berkeley for 21 years, Okay, so I've been artistic director for 10 I guess, you know, I'll be there until they kick me out, which is probably pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> and and how many do you direct a year? I usually direct two. Um, but, like, next year I'm going to do, do one because, of, because like, Taking Over and Carrie Show are both uh, going to go on a lot, lot, lean a lot, like, on the road. So I want to pay attention to that when that happens. Does it become a problem when someone asks you to do something and you've got your duties at Berkeley? Oh, of course. I would never abandon my... But because I'm also going to do the the um, the uh, the Kushner thing, uh, right. that 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 makes it a little bit more precarious. So, but I'm going to bring that back. So I, I always try to 
If I'm going to work out of town, it's much better, obviously, if I can bring the work back. And what about film? Have you ever thought of doing film? I have thought about it, and I even seriously entertained it a couple of years ago. But um, one time, two, the rhythm of theater really suits me. I really like being able to do shows, you know, within a within a eight month period of time. I, the idea of spending like five years in a like in a movie, and basically it's like being in like technical rehearsals for like two years. I mean, I don't really relish that. You've been listening to part two of a two-part interview with Tony Tacconi, artistic director of Berkeley Rep. Now playing at Berkeley Rep, Tragedy, a Tragedy by Will Eno, which is open till April 13th, and uh, Wishful Drinking with Carrie Fisher, which will be playing till April 12th. I'm Richard Walensky for Open Book. This program was produced by Richard Walensky. Other programs hosted by Richard can be heard online at www.bookwaves.com. You can contact Richard at bookwaves at hotmail.com or by calling KPFA at 510-848-6767, extension 630. Richard Walensky returns next Thursday on Bookwaves with an interview with author Mary Dora Russell. How does a young hero adjust when coming back from Iraq? How does a family welcome and adjust for their hero coming home? Join Teatro Vision, the Bay Area's Latino theater company, as they present the play Hero. Hero is a humorous, insightful look at a young man's decision to go to war, written by MacArthur Fellow and playwright Luis Alfaro. Hero will run through April the 27th and will be performed at a special location, the art space Macla, located at 510 South 1st Street in downtown San Jose. This event is co-sponsored by KPFA. Proceeds benefit the work of Teatro Vision, and this event is...